You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dana Anspa, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. Okay. I'll admit it. I'm addicted. Not to spending, like we hear so often in the media today, but to the exact opposite. I'm addicted to accumulation. It wasn't always this way. Burned out of medicine and newly indoctrinated to the financial independence retire early community, I was enamored with this idea of quitting my job and never collecting a paycheck again. Yet, as the time grew near and it was appropriate to think about turning off the spigot and actually drawing down... I couldn't do it. It didn't matter what the number said or how safe my safe withdrawal rate was. I couldn't pull the trigger. Most of us with an actual portfolio and savvy enough to listen to financial podcasts will never run out of money. In fact, due to the conservative nature that has brought us to such a financially vaunted place, many of us will die with millions. Is this smart money management or a sickness? Are we denying ourselves? in the name of safety. Dana Ansbach is the founder and CEO of Sensible Money, LLC. In 2020, for the third year in a row, Investopedia named Dana to their top 100 most influential financial advisor list for her contributions to financial literacy. She has been writing as an expert on retirement-related topics since 2008, including contributions to MarketWatch and U.S. News & World Report. She's the author of the books Control Your Retirement Destiny and Social Security Sense, available on Amazon. Dana Anspach, welcome to Earn and Invest. Dana, let's cut to the chase. Over the years, how many of your clients have actually run out of money in retirement? Well, one. One. <laughs> and and I warned her um, many years in advance that she was going to run out of money if she continued to spend excessively. In her case, most of it was on giving money to one of her adult children. And so she kept spending assets down at a very accelerated pace over what we had planned. And I warned her seven years in advance and yet couldn't change the behavior. But that is the rare occasion, right? That's not what we see very often. There was some kind of, I believe, you know, perhaps mental health issue that contributed to that situation. 
Did this surprise you when you started building your practice? I mean, by this time, you have a large practice. You have a bunch of people working with you. You guys have seen thousands of clients, right? So we're talking about a, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people in this situation. Did that catch you off guard when you started practicing? Yeah. You know, there's a bell curve. And I would say of what we see, the overwhelming majority will never spend their wealth. Matter of fact, when we go through the planning process, a lot of our role is giving them permission to spend. It's running different scenarios, reassuring them that if this happens or that happens, like all of these scenarios were running out, your plan still looks rock solid. It looks just fine. And it's amazing how how people can't get their head around that. You know, there's a small subset, I'd say maybe 10% who are what I call overspenders, you know, what they would like to spend relative to their wealth probably won't work. And that's a whole different conversation. But that leaves the other 90% that are either a good match, they're spending aligns with their wealth, or about half of them fall on that side where, you know, we're almost encouraging them to spend, finding things that they would that they would have value for them, not just frivolous spending, but things that would matter to them. So we're soliciting those types of conversations to get them to think about it. You think your practice is atypical? I mean, you do financial planning for retirement. Are you like most practices out there or is this different? You know, we have a specialty in decumulation. And I think as I started to work with that market in 2010, I got a designation called a retirement management advisor, and I could see a certain hesitation as people entered retirement. Uh, I tell the story of a, a couple that I've worked with for 23 years now, and they were very comfortable with market volatility and planned well and had sufficient assets. And yet the year he was going to retire, they came in eight times and he wanted to rerun his plan every possible way. And so I could see that there was this, I almost want to call it terror, right? Like I've worked so hard to save this money. You know, now you're telling me I I, I need to take out how much and it's really going to be okay. And, and I remember another gentleman who you know, we'd done through all this planning and they knew this is all our firm specializes in. And yet one day he said, Dana, you realize like in two months, I won't have a paycheck. Do you understand that? And so it, it just made me laugh. It was like, yes, that's all we do is plan for that phase. And yet there's this, you know, I can't remember the word you used in the intro, but, you know, almost like a, you know, a psychosis around, oh my gosh, like, is this really going to work? And And I think, you know, that makes sense. If you're really good at saving money and putting money away, and there is almost like that dopamine hit from watching your balance and, and your, your total net worth go up, and now you're going to start spending it, I, I think it's normal to feel that way. I love as you talk about the dopamine hit, because that's the exact same thing we talk about when we talk about spending, that people spend and they get that dopamine hit. But the reverse is also true. These people who are conservative and save and really plan for retirement, they get that same hit, except they get it from saving and not spending. We're going to come back to this idea of giving people permission to spend. But before we do, just a little bit about your past. How did you end up going into financial planning? And more specifically, why decumulation? I mean, that sounds like an interesting thing to concentrate on as you become a financial planner. 
Yeah, two separate stories. So the first, um, growing up, my dad always said, you know, the first thing you should do when you're out there on your own is, you know, hire a financial planner. And so I had this probably rolling in the back of, of my head somewhere. And I was 21 and and married and we lived in Grand Junction, Colorado. I was a, a journalism and advertising major. We moved to this small town, couldn't find any advertising copywriting jobs, which is what I had really wanted to do. And so I ended up selling ads in something called the RL Polk directory. It's kind of like an, an outdated version of the Yellow Pages. I had to go door to door to different businesses. And I remember distinctly, I ran into one guy who said he was a financial planner and another who said he was a financial planner. And we met with both. One person recommended we put all our discretionary income into two whole life insurance policies. And the other person explained why we needed to build up an emergency fund, explained what a money market fund was, explained why we needed to use the 401k plan and get the company match, explained the volatility of markets and dollar cost averaging and how we would begin to save into a blue chip stock mutual fund. I could clearly see that one person was a salesperson and the other was truly a planner. And I used to ask our planner is who we hired. His name was Les Zetmeyer. I used to ask him so many questions that one day he said, you know, have you ever considered this as a career? And so it, that's how it happened. That was in 1995. And uh, I've been in financial planning since. Then I, I was in Colorado at the time. I moved to Arizona in 2001 and uh, worked with a CPA firm building their wealth management practice. And there was a couple they brought in who was 65. And this was 2003. They had brought in a decade's worth of their brokerage statements. And I could see that each time they expressed a concern, their broker had simply moved them into another product. And the timing of those moves was horrible you know, such that, you know, they were worried about stocks. So they moved from stocks to bonds right at the time the interest rates went up. And so the bond mutual funds they were in went down and then they thought they couldn't lose money in bonds. So they brought up that concern. So he moved them into a fixed annuity. And so it was just, you know, in that decade, in a normal balanced portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, their money should have doubled. And instead, they had the exact same amount after a decade. And I remember they, they were just the nicest couple. They reminded me of my grandparents. And something inside of me was like, we have to do better. You know, as an industry, it's one thing if you make a bad investment or you make a mistake in your 20s and 30s, you have time to recoup from that. But this couple couldn't go back to work. You know, this was it. This was all their life savings for the rest of their life. And so that's what really sparked my journey on studying decumulation. What has to be done differently? It is not the same game that you're playing as you are when you're accumulating assets. It's a different math problem that you're solving. I became very passionate about it. And that that is how it all worked out. Get more specific. You say it's a different math problem. And one of the things that definitely strikes me is I always thought accumulation was the harder portion until I got to the point where I started thinking about decumulation. So why is it a different math problem and which is harder? Well, let's start with the different math problem. So in accumulation, the outcomes are relatively linear. I'm, I'm going to say relatively because we don't know the market returns, right? If you're accumulating during a period that started in the 80s and you have double-digit returns, you are going to obviously have a lot more wealth than if you you know, were accumulating at the beginning of a 10-year kind of 
slow period or poor market returns. But at the same time, we can plug in and say, you know, if you save this much and you earn this range of returns, this is where you're going to be. And it's it's relatively linear. In decumulation, there's how long are you going to live? How much are you going to actually spend each year? It's not as linear as as the accumulation period of time. What are your returns going to be? And more importantly, the sequence of those returns. So as I'm taking money out, if I get that prolonged decade of poor returns, it's going to have a an outsized impact on, on my outcomes. And so in accumulation, if you think of the, the typical math problem that's solved, it's something called the efficient frontier, modern portfolio theory. And across the horizontal axis, you have risk. And across the vertical axis, you have returns. And so you're really plotting out what mix of assets would give me the highest potential return for the least amount of risk. And you want to take as much risk as possible if you have a long period of time ahead of you. But in decumulation, instead, that horizontal access becomes either how much can I spend or what's my shortfall risk? Like, what's the risk that I could run out of money or couldn't meet the desired level of spending? And on the vertical access becomes your remaining wealth at the end of plan. Like, how much are you going to pass along to heirs? And so when you plot all of that out, it turns out that returns have very little to do with the outcome. And volatility, and particularly having a plan to manage downsize volatility or having a plan to not have to liquidate your portfolio during one of those bear market years or not having to liquidate a portion of it, that becomes much more important to your outcome than in the accumulation years. So that's the first piece of your question. Like, what? how is the math different? Why is the, the problem you're solving different? The second piece, which is harder? Oh, no question decumulation. The different tax impacts of all the types of accounts that you have, the way the tax code intersects. So there's these complex formulas that determine how your social security is taxed. Then you layer on that your you know, IRMA premiums, the income-related monthly adjustment amount that determines your your Part B premiums, which affects, you know, t- typically the, the higher net worth um, segment of our, our of our population. And so you you factor how IRA distributions are taxed with their required minimum distributions versus how Roth IRA distributions are taxed. And all of this intersects. There's tremendous amount of opportunity to make your assets work more effectively for you if you coordinate all of this, but it's a lot more work and a lot more complex than it was during your accumulation years. You know, as I listen to you describe this, I think of two things, and I never quite couched it this way. You know, in accumulation, you're really talking long-term about returns, whereas decumulation, you're really talking long-term about volatility. And in accumulation, time is your friend, and in decumulation, time is your enemy. And I never quite put it into those terms until I kind of heard you describe that, uh, the difference between the two. Let's talk about your practice, sensible money your mission statement is to create the freedom to live without the thought of money. I found this interesting. I like feel like that's the ideal, but then I know myself. Is there such thing as not having the thought of money? I mean, do you find that you can set it to the point where people can forget it? Or is it something that just continuously comes up in their brains? 
You know, I agree with you. I don't know that there's ever a point in time where we never think about money, but the story I always tell, and it's where our mission statement came from, was a couple I began working with in 2010, and about two years after working together, on a meeting, he said, this is amazing. I don't watch financial TV anymore. Those were his words. Now, I guess prior, he had been glued to CNBC or CNN or whatever, you know, Jim Cramer, I don't know what what he was watching, but constantly feeling like he needed to watch the stock market and watch these different financial shows and that somehow that was going to tell him you know, what he should be doing with his money. And so it freed him from that worry. He was actually able to go out and enjoy retirement. And so when we talk about that you know, freedom to live without the thought of money, that's really what we mean is that you're not obsessing over it, you know, particularly when election years come around, which we're coming up on. You know, we find that if we can really educate people around the past and whatever may happen, you know, the markets, these are the potential outcomes that, and you're going to be fine either way. Then it, it can free them up from that obsession, like, oh my gosh, if this happens, should I be doing this with my money? Should I be doing that? And, and that's really the, the goal of that. Do you ever completely get free from the thought of it? No, but there is a tremendous amount of research and my own personal experience would would second this, that people obsess about the numbers up until about the year after retirement. And once they're through that first year and they have been taking you know money and living comfortably, it kind of takes a second back seat. you know it it some other things take priority and they do relax and they they aren't quite as obsessed over it. Do people understand this idea that in retirement, there are different stages and you may be spending differently in those different stages? So for instance, right after retirement, some people may argue those are what are called, right? The go-go years, right? And you should actually be spending a little more. Is that something that's easy for your clients to understand? Some of them it is. Some of them have heard that concept and and will come in and ask for, you know, could we do this, this, and this in our first few years of retirement? And so we can model that extra spending into their plan to illustrate, yes, you can do that, and you're still not going to put the later you at risk. Other people are more cautious, and we've seen that they will, it's just their nature, right? Even though we tell them they could do it, they just hesitate, they don't feel comfortable. But what will happen is later in their 70s, they will realize, wow, we still have this much wealth left. And I have seen people at that phase start gifting more, not frivolously gifting, but you know, maybe they're going to fund 529 plans for their grandkids, or maybe they're going to help an adult child um, you know, put a bigger down payment on a house or invest in a business. We've had several clients who, you know, their daughter, we have one recently who is buying a veterinarian practice and she could fund that with commercial financing, but they could also lend her or gift her some of the money at much more favorable terms. And so we ran through it. They wanted to know if they could do this. And we said, yes. And so, you you know, you start to see people realize, wow, how could I use this wealth? If I'm taken care of first, my my needs are taken care of first, how could I use this wealth to make a difference either for people I care about, family, um, or for causes I care about in terms of charity? There's another story that comes to my mind. Um, a client that one of our planners works with, and, and she had this conversation with them, and they're like, we're comfortable. Like, what would we spend on? But they 
started to think about it and they had a family member who was living paycheck to paycheck who had a lot of medical issues and they decided to gift him $10,000. Now, for some people that may not seem like much, but he was flabbergasted and like, why are you doing this? And they explained, they had read the book, Die With Zero, um, which isn't as terrifying as it sounds. It's really about (laughs) spending on values. And so they had said, you know, we want to use some of, of what we have to make a difference. And he was just so appreciative and it it made a massive difference in his stress level, his ability to handle the medical issues he was going through. And so that's a story that just, you know, warms my heart because they had sent us an email and in that email they had said, you know, they're the kind of people that will share a Coke at dinner because it costs less. And so, you know, here they are yet able to do this for a family member. And and, and that's really what our wealth is for if we've reached that that point where we're okay. I want to jump into this idea of the die with zero ethos. We're talking about the book by Bill Perkins, which has had quite a splash on the personal finance world. But before we do that, talk to me about risk mitigation, because I'm I'm thinking of people who are becoming more aware of the fact that they're not spending as much as they thought they were. Maybe they can gift. Maybe they could take some of those vacations when they still have their energy and health to do it. But then this idea of risk mitigation comes in. We're all afraid of things like long-term care. What if I get older and get sick and need to pay for it? How does that play into those fears of running out? Because I I imagine we get to this point where if we roll the dice and everything goes well, we're going to die with millions. And if we happen to get the wrong roll of the dice, we could end up in long-term care for two or three years and end up with nothing. How are people managing that risk? You know, the way we manage that risk is by creating a lifelong financial model and modeling out these situations and saying, okay, you know, if this were to happen, you would still have this much wealth. And so I think the modeling process is what frees you up to focus on the other things that are more important, not not necessarily the financial things. And that risk mitigation, you know, when you were had commented earlier about the difference between accumulation where it is focused on returns and and what came to my mind is yeah, decumulation is all about managing risks. Longevity risk is one of those how long will we live? Um long-term care, you know, the potential for higher medical costs later in life, that is another risk. And there are different tools that can help manage some of those risks. And one of the mistakes I see people make is still applying the accumulation tools to that decumulation period, meaning they might be measuring decisions on what is the greatest return instead of measuring the decision on, well, what would best help protect me in terms of if I did have a long-term care event? What would best protect me in case I live to 105? And there are certain tools that that can help. So you think about making financial decisions that you're layering in to help protect against these different types of risks rather than focusing on on maximizing returns. But to answer your question, yes, you do need to account for those risks. And people are different. We are all so different in our tolerance for that. So one couple might say, well, as long as I have enough and if the last check bounced, that's fine. Now, in reality, they never get close to that, right? <laughs> but but they would be comfortable with that. And the other couple might say, wow, if I don't have, you know, at least 2 million remaining by the time I'm 80 to cover long-term care costs, I'm not going to be comfortable. And so you can can model it out within parameters that fit someone's risk profile. And, and that's really what helps them ease them through those types of decisions. 
We are talking to Dana Ansbach. She is the founder and CEO of Sensible Money LLC. In 2020, for the third year in a row, Investopedia named Dana to their top 100 most influential financial advisor list for contributions to financial literacy. And we are talking decumulation. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up to date first party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are talking to Dana Ansbach. She has been writing as an expert on retirement-related topics since 2008, including contributions to Market Watch and U.S. News and World Report. She's the author of the books Control Your Retirement Destiny and Social Security Sense, both available on Amazon. We mentioned Bill Perkins' book, Die With Zero, this idea that we have different seasons in our lives. And if we don't learn how to spend and how to use that money to create experiences and things that are important to us, we're going to somewhat miss out. How many people have this ethos? I mean, you've got a broad range of clients. Do you hear them voice such things as, yeah, let's let's kind of spend this money and let's use it while we can? Or do your clients tend to be more conservative? I would say they tend to be more conservative. You know, if I had to put some numbers on it, maybe one out of 10 would be the let's spend this money, maybe two out of 10. Um, But the bulk of them come in not sure if they can even retire and often are surprised to find out that they could and that they would be comfortable. And so often it's us initiating those conversations and saying, you know, you're fine you could spend up to this amount, 
what are the things that are important to you and not on the spot like that takes some deep work to really think about what matters to you and and so it's you know as we talked about earlier i think it's just scary there's that fear factor that kind of takes over we have many clients who grew up with scarcity so i have one you know who grew up very poor and i think that certainly impacts his decisions on his household of that constant fear of i don't you know am i going to mess this up am i going to go back to how it was when i grew up they're they're nowhere close to that but all kinds of things that happened in our upbringing can contribute to the way we're approaching decisions at that stage so what you're talking about is generational trauma So you must see this fear quite a bit. How as an advisor, do you help people get past that? Like, what are some of the steps that people who know they have this fear can take so that they can enjoy their money and maybe have a little less anxiety? You know, what first thing came to my mind is, Jordan, you and I were at a conference together recently, and there was a speaker who suggested people seek out a mental health professional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, yes, for sure. Um, There's definitely been times where, you know, we've wanted to suggest that to clients. You walk a fine line there, right, of of trying to figure out, like, is is there anything I can do? Um, We try to shift their thinking, their feelings about it by doing a lot of financial modeling. And if that doesn't work, you know, we're analytical, we're logical based, but ultimately, at the root of it all, we're human beings with feelings. And it's our feelings that are driving that decision. And so as financial advisors, you know, we try to find ways to uncover what the objections might be or or what is going on underneath that might be holding someone back. And that's the best we can do. Sometimes we are able to have a significant impact on shifting people's behavior. And sometimes we're not because there's something that they need to work through, something they haven't dealt with yet, or regardless of what they we say, they just they can't believe that this outcome could could possibly be true. And those are the toughest situations for us. We were talking about the die with zero ethos. How common is it that people actually want to decrease spending as they get older because they're worried about that inheritance that they're leaving? or that philanthropy is important to them. Is that a major goal for the people that you're advising? I don't see that as a major goal. I see it not decreased spending because they want to leave uh, an inheritance, but I see decreased spending as something that happens naturally. So you talked about the go-go years, but then come the slow-go years. And as people enter their mid-70s, in almost every case, their spending decreases naturally. And sometimes the way that happens isn't necessarily the way you think. So let's take an example of someone taking, you know, $10,000 a month out. And each year, if we've modeled in that they might need a raise for inflation. So we might say, well, you know, next year, do you need to take 10500 a month out? And early in retirement, in the last few years, we've had many people take us up on you know those inflation raises. But what will happen as they get into their 70s is they will say, you know, no, like what you're sending me is enough. And so there can be a decade where they don't decrease their 
withdrawal that they're taking. Now, that's not a decrease in spending the way we might traditionally think of it. It's not like their withdrawal went from 10,005 back to 9,000, but in inflation adjusted terms, their spending did decrease because inflation was still happening and yet their withdrawal amount stayed the same for a decade. And I have seen that repeatedly where people just they are comfortable, they travel less, they're eating out less, they might not be shopping, buying new clothes as often, they're not working and so there there might not be that need for those types of dry cleaning and 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 commuting expenses um it might be that they're just not out in, in terms of entertainment as much they're more comfortable staying at home so there's all kinds of things that just happen naturally but not necessarily do i see it as a result of oh i want to preserve my wealth to to pass along you were talking about that transition from the go go to the slow go and no go years i've heard quite a bit of arguing in the financial community about what we should be doing with our asset mix at that time, especially if you're concerned maybe for leaving for next generations, et cetera. A lot of people talked about becoming more conservative, right? Having more of a fixed uh, amount of assets when you're getting to those retirement years. But there's also an argument that maybe we should be getting more aggressive as retirement goes on. How much changing of people's Asset allocations are you doing as they get older? Is it something that's more static or are you, for instance, maybe getting more aggressive with certain certain of your clients? You know, the way we go about that isn't really age related. It's really related to the cash flows and goals that someone has. So what we see, for example, is a, a Roth IRA. If we've been successful at either funding tax-free Roth accounts or converting IRA assets to a Roth, that Roth asset is often earmarked for the next generation. So within that account, we may say that's going to be 100% equity. That's going to pass along tax-free. Your beneficiary will have 10 years now with the new rules to to take that out. But we want to maximize returns in that tax-free vehicle. But the other accounts, it's really related to us projecting out the cash flows that they're going to need. What are the withdrawals that you're going to need? And how do we make sure a about the next eight to 10 years are covered in safe, more conservative, you know, not stock market related investments. And then beyond that, uh, the, the amounts left over can be invested in growth. Now, what we often see, again, that happens naturally is we will build up this you know, one of our industry writers, uh, experts, Michael Kitsis, talks about this concept called a bond tent. So we will build up this, this, ladder of safe investments that are going to mature to cover you as you transition into retirement. But then over time, as we keep extending that ladder, if stocks do what they've historically done, and over time they earn more than bonds, your equity allocation will naturally rise. You will still have that bond ladder, income ladder laid out in front of you to cover your withdrawals. But we do see that oftentimes 15 years into retirement, someone may be at 70% stocks, you know, 30% bonds where they started retirement at 60, 40. And it wasn't us necessarily saying we need to do this. It was a natural progression. We do the planning based on cash flow. and, And that just happened naturally over time. So we've been talking about what mistakes people aren't making in retirement. And the big mistake that you're seeing or that people aren't making is running out of money. Maybe the mistake is they're not spending enough. Talk about some of the other mistakes. Are there common things that people do wrong as they're approaching decumulation that that is just common in your practice? 
Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that they do wrong. The things that have scared me the most are people that are nearly 100% stocks still the year before they're going to retire. And we had one of those come in a few years ago um, in the medical field, uh, lived in Colorado. And luckily, you know, we were able to transition their portfolio and build out that bond ladder. It was right before uh, the market declined in 2020. And so that had a significant impact on them feeling comfortable as they went through this transition. But, you know, that would have been terrifying. That's the year you retire and you go through this this bear market. Uh, it was a rather short-lived bear market, but still, it doesn't matter. It, it would have been very scary. So that's the number one thing I see. I wish people would really start that planning process about a decade out. Um, at the conference we were at, I shared my own plan. I'm 52. Um, starting at about age 55, and I am 100% equity because I'm squarely in my accumulation years. But starting at about 55, I will be projecting out the potential withdrawal I would need to take at 65 or 66, and I will be shifting that much of my portfolio, whatever percentage that is, from stocks to a bond that will mature the year I turn 65. Now, the next year, I'll do the same. And the next year, I'll do the same. So it'll be a very gradual progression so that by the time I get to 65, I may not retire at 65. I love what I do. But by the time I get there, I will have that option to say, okay, I don't have to worry about stock market volatility. Now, there's some flex you can bring into that. If if the year I turn 55, we're in a bear market, I would put off that transition a year. I, would, I wouldn't just automatically execute it. I would pay attention to overall if we're in a bear market or, or a stronger market. But I think starting that transition in a very gradual way about a decade out, can make a, a huge difference. What we typically see is people, you know, really get serious about this maybe one to three years out. Is that a big mistake? No, it just, it could have been done better. Um, the other things I still see are, are people that just don't pay attention to taxes. So, you know, the understanding of how all of those things intersect together, whether it be this opportunity to do Roth conversions. I have a client right now who's in a very low tax year. They're building a new house. Um, we absolutely think it makes sense for them to take some money out of their IRA to subsidize this cost because their tax rate's so low. So not even a Roth conversion, just here's where we think you should spend from this year. But in their mind, that money's preserved and they shouldn't touch it till their RMDH, but they would be leaving tax money on the table. And so the amount of effort it, it's going to take just to, to really say, no, you really should take money out of this IRA account this year. Like that will save you in taxes over, over the long haul. So those are some mistakes that, that I see also. Yeah. People miss this idea that between their retirement age and RMD age, required minimum distribution, that you have this golden period to convert a lot of their tax-deferred savings into something that has then been taxed and at a much lower rate than if they had either not put them into their 401ks and IRAs in the first place or waiting till it comes out in RMDs, which could could actually spike up and people don't realize it. 
Yeah, absolutely. You also have this opportunity for some households to qualify for the health care tax credits. So if they're retiring pre-65 and they're buying a health plan off of healthcare.gov, we've seen even high net worth households with, with financial assets in the two to three million range be able to qualify for these tax credits with proper planning. There's also sometimes the opportunity to realize capital gains that would fall into the 0% tax rate. So there's so many, we call those the opportunity years between 55 and now about 73, where tax planning can really pay off. So we've been talking about your clients, but you did mention that you're starting to do some of your own retirement planning. Talk about how you think it'll feel personally when you get to that place where you have to question your own spending and decide how much you're going to spend every month. Do you think you'll be like your clients in a sense, maybe a little more reticent than what your brain tells you is okay? I do. And I I probably think about this more than most people my age because this is what I do. And I have hundreds of examples that I've seen in front of me, which is really cool in one aspect. You have all of these examples of how people age and how they deal with family situations and how they handle finances. And at the same time, I can feel the same feelings that I see my clients express, like this terror about retirement. For me, um, it feels less financial and more, I I love what I do, and I get so much value from going to work each day and making a contribution and making a difference in people's lives. And so, you know, I've read a lot of um, Fritz Gilbert's work, The Retirement Manifesto. I love some of his thinking on this of really coming up with a system of values. How are you going to apply these values to that phase of life? And so I think a lot about that, you know, different phases where how am I going to contribute? When will it make sense for me to let some of the younger partners that are buying into my firm take more and more responsibility? And I've laid out a 20-year plan to to make that happen. And I think having that plan and being by nature a planner will help me actually execute it. But I think I'll experience all the same feelings, you know, that fear of spending money. Um, Right now, what I do is I have my savings targets each year. And once I've made those targets, I can spend the rest. And I find even that sometimes um, makes me nervous. Like, well, should I be spending this? You know, we want to take a trip or maybe I should add that to savings, even though I've already hit my savings targets this year. Like maybe it would just be prudent to, you know, so I I experience all of the same feelings that my clients do. And it's just having that plan to follow and actually having all of these examples of how it works out helps me a lot. Go, nope, Dana, just follow the plan. You're going to be okay. Uh, the the best description I heard of this is uh, my friends Mark Troutman and Kevin Sebesta, who I know through the financial independence movement, talk about creating a fun bucket, right? A bucket for fun money. And they put a certain amount of money in that bucket and they have to spend it. And so here's a great twist on that that I heard. I can't remember who else I heard this from is the money left over in their fun bucket. If they don't use it, they have to contribute it to a candidate they don't like. Well, I love that. That's awesome. I think that's a good way to force you to go out and and do some things that, you know, you really want to experience. One of the things that you and I talked about when we discussed doing this episode about decumulation is you mentioned that it was not only for yourself, you think about these things quite a bit, but for your family too. 
you've had some of these conversations with, was it your mother? Yeah. So my mom, um, has mental health issues growing up, you know, she's an alcoholic and she's been diagnosed as bipolar. And so financially, my parents were divorced when I was three. My dad was always very prudent with money. And as I mentioned, you know, influenced myself and, and my two brothers very much and what we should do. And, and I think that that got planted in my subconscious. My mom filed bankruptcy twice growing up. So I had this firsthand example of the difference of what it looks like when you manage money well and in a disciplined fashion and, and when you don't. And so the challenge is my mom now has a she was a teacher, so she has a teacher's pension, and that's really it. And so it's it's interesting. She called um I think just about a week ago really concerned about whether it was time for her to downsize. She she owns a home, she doesn't have a lot of equity in it. And very concerned with, you know, if we could come out and, and help her with these types of things. And it's interesting, um, you know, for me, this isn't so much of a, she doesn't have resources. She just doesn't, right? So she will need to go on Medicaid one day. That will be the solution. And it's also a very personal challenge. And I know a lot of people in the sandwich generation will be dealing with this, right? Like we're, we'll be dealing with parents. But when you have a parent who wasn't really there for you. You know, that that's the case in in my situation. Not in her case because she didn't want to be. She truly has has mental health issues. But it's really interesting all the emotions I experienced in that phone call of just why do I have to do this? Like why do I have to go help my mom? Like mom was never there for me. And so there's that childish kind of reaction that happens first. And then coming back to like my values and what's important to me. Like okay, this is your mom. You know, she she has an illness. If it was cancer, if it was any other kind of illness, right? We it, this is we would be there. And so, how can I go be there and support my mom through this decision? And so in that single conversation, you know, all of this was swirling around in my head to a final conclusion of mom, I'm going to schedule a time to come out. I'm going to help you with this. We're going to arrange someone to come, you know, help clean out the house or if you're ready, you know, we need to move her her washer and dryer from the, the basement floor up to a you know single level so she doesn't have to go up and down the stairs. So there's things, you know, that I can go do that I can help her with. But it was really interesting. Like it wasn't a financial decision. It was a that emotional decision of, you know, just everything I grew up with and figuring out like how who do I want to be? Like, who do I want to be in this situation? What am I going to feel good about later when I look back? And, you know, would I feel good if I said, oh, you know, well, mom, you weren't there for me. So figure it out on your own. No, like that would not ultimately that would not feel good to me. And so I think we all wrestle with those kinds of decisions with family members and how we're going to be there to help. And what are, you know, who do we want to be? I think that's a good summation of what we're talking about today. This idea that often accumulation is a lot about math and advanced planning, whereas decumulation is more about volatility and often emotion. And that's where a lot of our demons come out. And those might be our demons about dying without enough. They may be our demons about our past money scripts, what we learned as children and our worries about being able to cover what we need. But decumulation ends up being more difficult. And maybe one of the ways to deal with that is planning and why 
we have to keep our emotions in check and look at the numbers and often ask for help so that we can decumulate in a healthy way and can enjoy that money we worked so hard to accumulate. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. So first and foremost, Dana Ansbach, tell me what's going on with your practice, Sensible Money. Tell people who you are and how people can learn more about your practice. Absolutely. So Sensible Money is a registered investment advisory firm that specializes in decumulation. We work with people 55 and older who typically have a million uh, in accumulated assets or more. Most of our clients are in that one to 10 million uh, mark. They often have more complex situations. They may own rental property or have a deferred comp plan or have stock options, you know, have a lot of moving pieces and they need someone to help coordinate all of this and figure out how much can they have and do all of the types of stress testing we've been talking about to make sure that they're covered for, for all of these risks. And that's really all we do. Um, while we will make an exception and work with people in the accumulation phase, if they're the adult children of our clients. Outside of that, we will refer anyone out if if they don't if they aren't really entering that that decumulation phase. So anyone can find out more at sensiblemoney.com. I also have a course on the great courses called How to Plan for the Perfect Retirement. It's a whole lecture series that's available on their streaming platform, which can be a great introduction to retirement planning if you're at that phase. Dana Ansbach, founder and CEO of Sensible Money LLC. Thank you for coming on Earn and Invest today. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. It is that time of the year, and because it is holiday season, I just want to remind everyone to think about those in need at this time of the year. It is easy to get involved in Thanksgiving and buying presents for the holidays, but there are those people right now out there who are struggling. I have been privileged to be on the American board of Give a Mile. It is a charity where you donate miles or money. And that goes to family members of hospice patients who don't have enough money to get plane flights to visit them at the end of these patients' lives. This is so important. We are in the midst of what we call the Flight Hero Program. This is where people like me are out there collecting miles and funds to help people in need. I would love for you to donate some miles, especially if you have United Miles or donate money. The easiest way is to go to earnandinvest.com slash give a mile. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash give a mile or just slash G-A-M. And you can learn more about this wonderful program. Now let's talk about my episode with Brad Barrett. I have been struggling forever as a content creator wondering... All of this information I'm producing, all this information that Brad is producing, is it helping those people who are truly in need? Yes, the people who are primed, who are already looking for this message often come to us, but they would probably find it anyway. The question is, how do we help those 
who aren't yet ready for this message. And Brad said something that I just, I think is wonderful. He said, we have to meet people where they are. And so when you come listen to Earn and Invest or choose FI, you are primed and you are at a place where you're ready to hear this message. That works for people like us, content creators, but the rest of you out there are not content creators and yet you have people in your lives you want to help. You have family and friends or children or parents who dearly need this financial help and yet you're struggling because they are not at a place where they're ready to hear it. You are trying to meet your family members where they are, and that place they are at is not ready to absorb some of this critical information that they may need or you might need them to need if we're talking about your parents and you're worried about supporting them or them supporting themselves. It's really important that they understand their finances. Well, we know that you can't bowl them over and convince them if they're not ready, but you can provide good financial information, be attentive, and wait for them to have some life event which then makes them primed to hear this information. You have to meet them where they are. Sometimes life changes. Something happens. Some drastic event in their life shows them that they have to start paying attention to their finances. And that's when your years of being persistent, of gently helping and gently pushing will hopefully provide them the ability to come to you and learn more, and you eventually can send them to all sorts of wonderful resources. Because then, then they are a primed audience, and they're ready for the blogs and the podcasts and the books and all that stuff us content creators produce for people who are ready to hear our message. Listen, I know it's frustrating, I've dealt with it with my kids. My wife has dealt with it with her parents. I'm sure many of you out there have had similar situations. And you want to go out there and fix the problem. You want to convince these family members to do a better job. But if they're not ready to hear you yet, you can talk to them till your face is blue. You are not going to make any headway. Meet them where they are Wait till they're primed, but also prime the pump yourself. Make sure that you are giving them whatever information you can. Make sure you're capitalizing on those moments when they're quote unquote weak or ready to hear your message. This is what it looks like to be a good family member or friend. This is what it looks like to help give financial information to people who are not ready for it yet. It's probably one of the most difficult things that all of us experience. And yet, it's so important because by helping your family and friends understand their finances, by helping them be ready that when they're primed, they can hear that message, will utterly change their lives. All right, so I leave things running just for our after show where we kind of chat about things and I usually kind of continue that on uh, after some other things go in between. So what do you think about the FIRE movement? Because I, 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 it's really interesting. Decumulation, as you've made a practice of, is a complicated thing. And it's complicated enough when you're in your 60s and you're looking at 25 to 30 years. But now we have people who are talking in their late 30s, 40-year-olds saying, hey, I'm going to retire Tell me your thoughts about that. And how does that change the decumulation game? 
Well, my first thoughts are, I, I had written this article on Market Watch called A Life Well Worked, and it was kind of my counter to the FIRE movement. And maybe it's because I've been lucky in finding something I'm passionate about, and I don't work for someone. I have a lot of flexibility or autonomy in how I do my schedule. doesn't mean I work any less hours, but at least I can control those hours. And so for me, that concept of a life well worked really resonated, where you can look back and really feel good about what you did and how you made a difference. But But there's also this concept of the mercenary movement, like you bid out your time to the highest bidder and make as much as possible and then and then be done. But I think it, it may have been you and I that talked about most of the people who retire early are still working are still in some fashion. Income, yes. Yes. One way or another. They're just yeah, they're doing, you know, what I talked about. Like they're 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 having enough to cover their bases so they can feel comfortable pursuing whatever they're they're passionate about. Um I I think that's just fine. I think you just have to know what you're up against. So you're sacrificing a lot. My own brother is in this situation. He's in New York City. Um, he called me Friday and he is facing this job that would pay him $250,000 a year. And, um, you know, that's a significant amount, but he knows he would hate it. But he just needs to work another year and a half to buy one more property. He's been accumulating properties before he could be really free. And so he's in this, oh my gosh, what do I do? Do I do it? And so I know I can't tell him what to do, but we had an interesting conversation. I don't think he's making the wrong decision either way. He just has to know like, yes, he can make a ton of money for another year and a half or two years and then probably be done. But he could also go on this road trip for the next six months with a friend of his, which is what he was planning. And so, you know, those are, those are hard values-based decisions. You really have to sit there as he and I talked about and kind of in five years, when you look back, like, what are you going to regret? And, you know, you don't know in his situation, he could regret it either way. And, and so those are, those are tough decisions. When it comes to fire, the other aspect is you have a long time frame, like, if you're freed up to pursue your passions and your passions aren't income generating, right? They don't generate very much in terms of healthcare costs and sequence risk and inflation. You know, if you retire at 50 versus 65, that's an extra 15 years in your planning horizon. So I think people need to be aware of that and prepared that if some of those risks materialize, that they may end up having to go back to work. Yeah, you know, I, I often think of this idea that um, kind of the simple man's view of, of decumulation or, or the simple man's way of hedging the risk is to just have some income. As sad as that sounds, but the truth of the matter is, especially for people who are looking at early retirement, right, quote unquote retirement, a lot of them have passions and things that might not pay them as much as their super CEO salary that they had when they were working, but enough to really hedge the risk, right? So if you, uh, when you look at things like safe withdrawal rates, et cetera, having a little bit of income really knocks those numbers down quite a bit and can be a very nice hedge, especially if you're young. And, And for people like me who are kind of young and we're in that in between space, we like the idea of being very equities based in our investments. And so to me, that also is kind of one of those hedges. It's like, well, I know I have a pretty secure sense of income for the next five, 10 years. And that helps me with more of my long-term retirement plan, as well as allows me to be more aggressive with my equities, which we know is probably somewhat important if you're looking at you know, a possible 40-year timeline. 
Yeah. And I think to your point, you know, if you can project out a plan where maybe you don't have to withdraw from savings yet, but you also don't need to contribute. So yeah. you're, you know, you could, you've built up enough of a nest egg that if you don't have to tap it, and we looked at the rule of 72 and, and it was all equities and you could say, well, on average, if it doubles every 10 years, right, I could just let this pot grow. I don't need to worry about adding to it anymore. I just need to earn enough to cover you know, my, my basic living expenses. I think that that could be a plan that works well. Yeah. The, the so-called coast fi method, right? Um, yes. I know a lot of other people try to build what they call a yield shield, right? This idea of, and again, you know, taking, you know, they might have like your brother was talking about is having real estate that creates a certain amount of income um, or, or using other means of having some type of regular income, whether that be annuities or what have you, to help protect them from having to draw down on their portfolio. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think dividends does that, but we all know that dividends are just a forced decumulation, right? It's a forced liquidation. So it's nice that you don't have to actively hit the sell button, but you're still selling equities whether you, whether you admit to it or not. Um, but I know a lot you of people are. think dividends are their yield shield. And I kind of have to, I, I've had that argument enough where you just can't convince some people, but this idea that, you know, it's pretty much, you know, forced liquidation, you're just not hitting the button. But not only that, but in 2008, you know, we saw many companies cut their yeah, dividends cut in their half dividends. Or, yeah. or eliminate them altogether. <laughs> So we look at that and we go, well, is that the kind of, that's not reliable cash flow. Like, are you willing to have your income get cut in half in retirement? Like that, that to me is not the kind of plan that I want. <laughs> as a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.